Acts of Yeshua's Emissaries, Shalakim, chapter 26. Chapter 26. And let us begin in verse number one. Agrippa said to Shaul, you have permission to speak on your own behalf. Then Shaul motioned with his hand, and he began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you today that I am defending myself against all the charges made against me by these Jewish leaders. Because you are so well informed about all Jewish customs and controversies, Therefore, I beg you now to listen. Both, I beg you now to listen to me patiently. So then all Jews know how I've lived my own life from my youth on, both in my country and in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time, and if they're willing, they can testify that I have followed the strictest party in our religion, that is, I have lived as a parush, a Pharisee. How ironic it is that I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made to our fathers. It is the fulfillment of the very promise to our 12 tribes hope to obtain. As they resultly carry on their acts of worship night and day. Yet in connection with this hope, your majesty, that I am being accused by Jews. Who, why do you people consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I used to think that it was my duty to do all I could to combat the name of Yeshua from Nazareth. And in Jerusalem, I did so. After receiving authority from the head Kohanim, I myself threw many of God's people into prison. When they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Often I went from synagogue to another, punishing them and trying to make them blaspheme. And in my wild fury against them, I even went so far as to persecute them in cities outside the country. On one such occasion, I was traveling to Damascus with the full authority and power of the head Kohanim. I was on the road, it was noon, your majesty, when I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and my traveling companions. We all fell to the ground and then I heard a voice saying to me in Hebrew, Shaul, Shaul, why do you keep persecuting me? It's hard on you to be kicking against the ox goads. I said, who are you, sir? The Lord answered, I am Yeshua, and you are persecuting me. But get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you to serve and to bear witness to what you have already seen of me and to what you will see when I appear to you in the future. I will deliver you from the people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to open their eyes so that they will turn from darkness to light, from the power of the adversary to God, and thus receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who have been separated for holiness by putting their trust in me. So, King Agrippa, I did not disobey the vision from heaven. On the contrary, I announced first in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout Yehuda and also to the Gentiles that they should turn from their sins to God and they should do deeds consistent with that repentance. It was because of these things that the Jewish leaders seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. However, I have God's help 
So to this day, I stand testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what both the prophets and Moshe said would happen. That Messiah would die and that he would, he as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim light both to the people and to the Gentiles. But just as he reached this point in his defense, Festus shouted at the top of his voice, Shaul, you're out of your mind. So much learning is driving you crazy. But Shaul said, No, I'm not crazy, Festus. Your excellency, on the contrary, I'm speaking words of truth and sanity. For the king Agrippa understands these matters. So to him I express myself freely, because I'm sure that none of these things have been hidden from him. After all, they did not happen in some back alley. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you believe. Agrippa said to Shaul, in this short time, you're trying to convince me to become messianic? Shaul replied, whether it takes a short time or a long time, I wish to God that only you, that not only you, but also everyone hearing me today might become just like me except for these chains. Then the king got up and with him the governor and Bernice and the others sitting with them. And after they had left, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing that deserves either death or prison. And Agrippa said to Festus, if he hadn't appealed to the emperor, he could have been released. You know, God wants us to give a defense. Our defense in this world. You and I are about to face calamities and pressure that we've never experienced in our lifetime. And know this, the I am dwells within you. He will fill your mouth in the appointed time when to speak and what to share. We don't have to rehearse anything. We don't have to practice anything. But the spirit of the living God will give us those words. Why is the Lord allowing his bride to remain on this earth? That we would be a light and a testimony and we would give a defense of the hope that is in us and that is Messiah. The world right now is trying to correct things. There are false situations happening by man to control things so they can seize power and authority over more and more people. Did not the Lord warn through the prophets that this day would come in the future? Think about the Tower of Babel. After Noah and his family, only eight people. Only eight people were saved from the great flood. And then they procreated and their descendants. And then one day a man named Nimrod rose up. And he gathered people. At that time, all the people of the earth spoke one language. And what took place there? They said, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us erect a tower. That was Hasatan's very first attempt, the adversary, of bringing the whole world together, all the men and women who were created in the image and likeness of God, to rebel against God. And think about the tower that they were about to build. Why do you think they wanted to build it so high? Because through man's efforts... They believe that, well, if God gets angry and sends another flood, at least a few of us will survive. So now Hasatan 
through every generation has tried to bring the world together. But what did the Lord pour out upon those people that were assembled in building the Tower of Babel? Multiple languages, ethnicities, different people. And the people who were once speaking one language, they were now speaking multiple language and they could not communicate with one another. And those who communicate with one another were able to leave that Tower of Babel. And God gave grace. How many times through the world that these people have been trying to do this? Time and time again. Because Hasatan knows this, his time is short. All these things are being assembled together. But we're not to fear. We're to follow the example of this emissary who is brought before both kings and priests and, and governors to speak the truth because I am that I am in Messiah dwells within him. The spirit of the living God. And so now here we begin, we go a little bit deeper. Shaul now began his defense. And this is not in a judicial sense, but he's giving testimony and defending his belief that Yeshua is the Messiah. For he's not being tried here before Herod, Agrippa II, since he has already appealed to Caesar in Acts 25.11. It is before him that he will be making that formal defense in the court. Did not Yeshua say to him, I'm sending you to Rome? This was the Lord's provision. And so Rav Shaul, if he just would have kept silent and just would have stepped back, if he did not appeal to Caesar, what did both Herod and Festus declare? They could find no fault in him. But what was the Lord's plan? See, because when, when these political leaders make decisions for our lives, who do we follow but he who sits on the throne of our lives? And even if they make a decision against God's holy word, we're to stand by God's holy word. Lord, we ask that you be with these individuals today who are now marching for life today. You, from your word, you say that the moment of conception begins life, created in your image and likeness, both male and female. And Lord, so we ask to be with those who are standing in the gap right now. They've been appointed, they've been ordained to walk for such a time as this. We pray for your protection. We pray for they to accomplish all you desire to accomplish this day. We also lift up our Supreme Court justices. Brent Kavanaugh, who recently had an attempt murder on his own life. We pray for him and all our Supreme Court justices, almighty God that they would examine what your words say, even those justices that may vote a different direction. May your word be released in their hearts and minds. May they fully understand that this decision they're about to make is going to affect not only their destiny eternally, but also the destiny of everyone who is about to be born both in the United States and around the world. Father God, we pray that the murder of the innocents in the most safest place that should be in this whole world and the universe, that being that child's own womb, would not be a place where that child's life is ended. We ask, Almighty God, that you will change, help change the laws in our land and the land and around the world. We ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Praise be unto God. And so now Shaul is now making, he's defending his whole life, his gospel, and his Lord. From Shaul and also Luke's viewpoint, because many of us forget who's here with Rav Shaul, but Luke. He's given the 
opportunity to not only walk beside Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, but also to record the acts of these emissaries, these called out ones. So from this viewpoint, he's doing even more than that. He's making use of the extraordinary opportunity to proclaim the good news to yet another kind of audience. Now the ruling elite. You know, there's ruling elite in this world right now that are trying to change everything in our daily lives. Should we be angry about what they're doing? Yes. But as Brother David shared earlier, we should be interceding and praying for them for they have a veil over their eyes. They don't know God's plan or God's purpose even for their own life. And they're pawns of the adversary to accomplish his taking. Because I tell you this, the scripture records this, that at one time in the near future that there will be ten regions, ten kingdoms that will be established. And there's a term here that I will use. Satan has always had his pawns, Judas, Iscariot, who have been what? Useful idiots to do the bidding of the adversary. So all these people who are elitists, who think that they're going to set and control this all up, they don't realize who they're actually working for. If you're not working for the God, Abba Father God, who sits on the throne, and his son Yeshua, and if you're not filled with the Ruach HaKodesh, then you're simply a pawn for the adversary Hasatan. Just as in the future, these ten kings, when they're giving that authority and power, it will be taken away from them. And one shall rise up among them, the anti-Messiah, and he's but a pawn. So are the false prophet. This shall all be accomplished. So now let's continue to listen to Rav Shaul as he's speaking to the ruling elite who are not saved, who have a veil over their eyes, both Jews and Gentiles. Festus representing the Gentiles, both Agrippa II and his wife Bernice represent the Jewish people who do not know Messiah yet. So here is, his hearers now see him as a prisoner. But Rav Shaul sees himself as an ambassador, the bringer of good news, even though he's now in chains. God has ordained for him to wear these chains. And this man is more freer than anyone who's in that room. So now Shaul is a picture of the situation is now correct in seeing that the responses of Festus later in verse 24 and Agrippa in verses 25 and 29. For they relate not to Shaul's guilt or innocence, but to the good news message. See, the tables have now been turned. He's proclaiming them to the good news, and they have to make a judgment, a verdict on their own eternal destiny. That is what weighs before them. And so with this, Shaul's speech now can be outlined, first with the introduction, verses 2 and 3. Next, Shaul's zealousness of a Pharisee, verses 4 through 8. Third, Shaul, the zealous persecutor of the Messianic Jews, his brothers and sisters, while he still had a veil over his eyes. Next, we see the fourth part, fourth part is Shaul confronted by Yeshua the Messiah, found in verses 12 through 18 of Acts 26. Next we see Shaul, the zealous preacher of Yeshua, 
as revealed in verses 19 through 20. Six, Shaul's arrest by zealous, unbelieving Jews. You know, the scripture says, so as you sow, so shall you reap. So Rav Shaul understood what was going on in their minds. Just as he saw these Messianic Jewish people, who were all Jews, who had given their hearts and lives to Messiah Yeshua as traitors, now Rav Shaul could understand their very thoughts, what they were comprehending, and had grace and mercy to love and show them grace and compassion. See, he didn't just step back and get in a political argument with them. How many believers today are now getting in political arguments with people who have veiled over their eyes? Who are simply pawns of Hasatan? See, that's how Satan wants to twist everything. He wants people to become so political that they do that they set aside their divine calling. And what is that? To go forward and preach the good news and make disciples. See, the scripture says that the Lord allows leaders, kings, governors, mayors to come to power for such a time. Does that say we're not to vote? Absolutely, we should vote. But we're to See these people with compassion. When was the last time, be honest, that you actually prayed for our current president and our vice president? Members of the Senate and members of the Congress. Your own governor. And those on the podcast, your political leaders in the land that you live. Have you seen them from the standpoint of being lost? And without hope. That's how Rav Shul sees these people who walk before him in a pageantry with their gold and their jewelry and their fine clothes, and they sat above him. Just as these elite people in our lives sit above us and they look down through their noses at us and they pity us because they believe this that they truly are the ones that should be making our life's decisions. But you know, as we stand before them, just as Rav Shaul is, our hearts to be filled with compassion. Because without the grace of God, there and I, you and I were prior, were we not? Has not the veil been removed from your eyes? Have you not been filled with the rock, the spirit of living God, that's led you into all truth? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whom shall ever believe in him shall be what? Shall be saved. Is that your heartbeat right now? Looking to those who are lost and without hope? These pawns, these people who are enslaved by Hasatan, who's leading them to what? That broad road that leads to destruction. Does your heart grieve for the lost? That's the heart of Rav Shaul here. So going on to number seven, Shaul's focusing on his own zeal. The eye encounter moment. As he offers his hearer's salvation through trusting Yeshua, the Messiah. Verses 23 through 29. So the pivot point now in Shaul's life, as well as his presentation and proclamation of the good news, with its choice between obeying God or not, Shaul's zeal is single-minded pursuit of his purpose in life. Now contrasts with the futile and indifferent amateur of the Roman aristocrats. So now we go back to verse number two. But I'll read verse number one. 
Agrippa said to Shaul, you have permission to speak on your own behalf. Then Shaul motioned with his hand and began his defense. Verse 2, King Agrippa considered himself, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you today that I'm defending myself against all the charges made against me by these Jewish leaders. But because you are so well informed about all Jewish customs and controversies, therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. He's asking him to pay attention. Because he's not worried about what decision that Agrippa is about to make, but for his own soul. He knows this, that the decision that Agrippa is about to make, if he rejects the good news and hardens his heart against God's way for salvation for him, that he's pushing that opportunity aside. How many times have you proclaimed the good news to family, friends, and co-workers? And they've come close to accept the Lord, but then they reject and they've hardened their heart. I'm defending myself against these charges made against me by these Jewish leaders. Jews here refers to Judeans, Jews from Judah, as opposed from the Galileans, because the majority of those who lived in Judea were of the ruling class of the nation of Israel. By Jews, or possibly by Judeans, who are also Jews, but not by Jews as if Jews were alien to Shaul. Moreover, in the Greek, there is no article before the word Lodoi. Agrippa himself was a Jew. His father, Agrippa I, wasn't. But his mother, Agrippa II, since his mother's was Miriam, the Hashemon princess, the Hashemin princess, and the second of King Herod the Great's ten wives. Where is this recorded? In Acts chapter 16, verse 1. The reason Shaul says he considers himself now fortunate to make his defense before him is that Agrippa, who is not only Jewish from birth, but is also well informed about Jewish customs and controversies. And he will appreciate now this situation. Shaul is now talking to a landsman. What is that? That is the Jewish word for fellow Jew. Because Agrippa's mother is Jewish. And he knows that he can now dispense with all the detailed explanations that would be necessary to get himself understood by pagans. Who that being? Festus and these Roman guards. The irony of verse 6 and 7 would not be lost now on Festus. Nevertheless, Shaul knows that he will be able to communicate one-on-one with Festus and the rest of the assembly too. Because when King Agrippa pays close attention, they will also pay close attention. So Shaul's introduction which is complimentary yet free of fabricated flatteries. This sets the tone of his speech. So now we go back to verse 4 and 5. So then all Jews know how I've lived my life from my youth, I'm both in my country and both in Yerushalayim. They have known me for a long time, and if they're willing, they can testify that I've followed the strictest party of religion. That is, I've lived as a parush, a Pharisee. Now as we dig deeper in 4 and 5, Shaul can take it as a given that all Jews, and if they're willing, they can testify about him. The evidence for this is in Acts 20, 21, and also Acts 28, 21 through 22. They had not yet been given an effort to expunge 
Shaul from history of the Jewish people. Although, by implication, some Jews would have already have refused to vouch for him. For he was from Tarsus and Cilicia. In Jerusalem, where Shaul studied under Rabban Gamiel, Rabbi Gamiel, he says, I lived as a parush, a Pharisee. The Greek verb here is eris tense. This implies action accomplished in the past that has effects on continuing into the present. Rav Shaul lived as a Pharisee in the past, and he continued doing so, even as, as a believer. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 23, verse 6, for this proof point. Acts 23, verse 6. They have known for me for a long time. If they're willing, they will can testify that I follow the strictest part, party in our religion. That is, I've lived as a parush, a Pharisee. From his own mouth, from his own testimony, he gave this. Also now turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Beginning at verse 1. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 14. And how since I am more of a zealot for the traditions handed down by my fathers, than most Jews my age, I advanced in the traditional Judaism more rapidly than they did. And also going on to Philippians chapter 3 verse 5. Philippians 3 verse 5. Brit Milah, that's circumcision. On the eighth day, by birth belonging to the people of Israel, from the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew speaker with Hebrew-speaking parents, in regard to the Torah, a parush, a Pharisee. So this is Rav Shaul's own testimony. Now by emphasizing for the benefit now of the gallery, Agrippa also knew it, that the Pershim, the Pharisees, are the strictest party of our religion. All the more does imply that as a Messianic Jew, he remained Torah observant. And where can we find the evidence of that? Acts 13.9 and also Acts 21.21. 21. Shaul remained a Jew all his life. Indeed, an observant Jew. And where can we find this? I'll give you the quotations here. Acts 16.3, Acts 17.2. Acts 18, 18, Acts 20, 16, Acts 21, 23 through 27, and Acts 25, 8, and Acts 28, 17. So now we go back to Acts 26, verses 6 and 7. How ironic it is that I stand on trial here because of my hope in the promise made to our fathers. It is a fulfillment of, of this very promise that our 12 tribes hope to attain as they resultly carry out their acts of worship both night and day. Yet it is with con uh, connection with this hope, your majesty, that I'm now being held by the Judean Jews, not the Galilean Jews. Why do you people consider it incredible that God raises people from the dead? And so now as we go deeper in verses 6 and 7. Why do the people consider it incredible that God raises the dead? There's a tendency among liberal scholars to regard Yeshua's resurrection as an event in variable invariable history. No, it's, it's verifiable. History. But as a subjective event... That's in the realm of faith. See, what they're trying to say is this. Yeshua's resurrection is not factual. It's just based on someone's belief or their faith that it actually happened. So going forward here, this is not the Bible's approach at all. A gentleman, his name is Jay Warwick Montgomery, he wrote this. 
on the Areopagus, Shaul presents Yeshua's resurrection as the capstone of his case for the truth of the good news. And where is that recorded? But in Acts chapter 17. Have you ever wondered how to bear witness to somebody who is truly a pagan and who is truly doesn't know any evidence of the one true and holy God? Rav Shaul found him, himself in this place because he could not quote to them any portion of the Tanakh because these people had no history of God's word being, being presented through his people because they were outside of the commonwealth of Israel. And so here it begins in Acts chapter 17, beginning at verse 19. And they took and brought him before the high council, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? Some of the things that we're hearing from you strike us as strange. And we would like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners living there used to spread, spend their spare time talking or hearing about the latest intellectual fads. Shaul stood up in the council meeting and said, Men of Athens, I see how very religious you are in every way. For as I was walking around and looking at your shrines, I even found an altar which, which has been inscribed to an unknown God, so that the one whom you're already worshiping in ignorance, this is the one I will proclaim to you. See, he studied the culture of the people that he needed to reach with the good news. And so he's now speaking their language because these Athenians, these pagans, were very, very religious. They had many gods. And they thought, well, maybe there's a god out there when their philosophers made a statement one day. Maybe there's an unknown god out there that we don't even know about. We don't want to offend him and cause an earthquake or a plague to come upon us. So let's go ahead and erect an a, a altar, a place of worship, so we will not offend this unknown God. And with Rav Shaul being raised in Tarsus, he not only had his education as a Jewish man pertaining to Torah, but also he was edu educated with some of the philosophies of that known world. This was part of the Lord's portion, that as a young man, he would learn that, but then later he would be moved to Jerusalem and study under the greatest rabbi of that time, Rabbi Gamiel. And so he goes on to say this, this is the one I proclaim to you, the God who made the universe and everything in it, who is Lord of heaven and of earth and does not live in man-made temples, nor is served by human hands, as if he lacks something since it is he himself who gives life and breath and everything to everyone. From the one man, he made every nation living on the entire surface of the earth. And he fixed the limits and their territories, the periods when they would flourish. God did this, so that people would look for him and perhaps reach out and find him. Although, in fact, he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist. Indeed, as some of the poets among you have said. See, he's speaking their language. He's relating. And just as now he's relating directly to Herod Agrippa, he related to Festus prior to this time. So let's go forward. For in him we live and move and exist. Indeed, as some of the poets among you have said, we are actually his children. So since we are children of God, we shouldn't suppose that God's essence resembles gold, silver, or stone shaped by human technique or imagination. You know what he's asking them to do right now? They're looking all around. 
And they're seeing all these images. They're made out of stone and marble and relating this to them. <clears throat> Since we are children of God, we are created in his image and likeness. He's opened up the door. He's helping remove the veil from their eyes so they can now receive the good news. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he's commanding that all people everywhere turn to him, turn to him from their sins. For, for he has set a day when he would judge the inhabited world and do it justly by means of a man whom he has designated. So he's introducing the Messiah. He's yet to come. And he's going to judge this world. See, he's, he's giving small little morsels to them to open up their understanding. And he has given public proof of it by resurrecting this man from the dead. Who's this man he's speaking of? But Yeshua himself. At the mention of the resurrection of the dead, people began to scoff. Aren't people scoffing today? People all over the world. There are now pastors who are standing behind pulpits. And a majority of them no longer believe that Yeshua Jesus was raised from the dead. That's the reality that we live in today. And they're supposed to be the spiritual leaders of those spiritual households in those communities. Let's go forward. While others said, we want to hear you again on this subject, so Shaul left the meeting, but some of them stayed with him and came to trust, including the high council member, Dionysus. There was also a woman named Damaris, and others came to trust along with him. And so that's how Rav Shaul spoke to those who had no foundation of the Tanakh. So we have to now give the other side. And that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn with me now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, brothers, I remind you of the good news which I proclaim to you and which you received and on which you have taken your stand and by which you are being saved. That means it's a progression. People coming to know the Lord. Provided you keep holding fast to the message I proclaim to you. For if you don't, for if you don't, your trust will be in vain. For among the first things I passed on to you is what I have also received, namely this, that Messiah died for our sins in accordance with what the Tanakh says. See, now he's speaking to another audience that he's already uh, introduced the Messiah to. And they have a background of what the Tanakh says. And those that were engrafted in from the, com from the commonwealth of the nations into the commonwealth of Israel were being educated. In accordance with the Tanakh says, and he was seen by Kepha, Peter, and by the twelve. And afterwards he was seen by more than 500 brothers at one time, the majority whom are still alive, though some have died. Later he was sent to Yaakov, Jacob, James, then by all the emissaries. And at last he was seen by me, even though I was born at the wrong time. For I am the least of the emissaries. I'm fit to be called an emissary because I persecuted the messiah Messianic community of God, but by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I've worked harder than all of them, although it was not I, but the grace of God within me. See, when we do works and we're equipped by the spirit of living God, we're not to take that personally, but we're to give all the glory to God because the Lord is the one who disperses all good gifts from the Father above by the power and the of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Spirit of the living God. We're not to walk in pride. It's the working outworkings of the, of the Spirit of the living God being manifested in our lives so that our brothers and sisters in Messiah 
can be built up in their holy faith. I've worked, anyhow, whether I or they, this is what we proclaim, and this is what you believed. But if, if it has been proclaimed that Messiah has been raised from the dead, how is it that some of you are saying that there's no such thing as a resurrection of the dead? If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Messiah has not been raised. And if Messiah has not been raised, then what we have proclaimed to you is in vain. Also, your trust is in vain. Furthermore, we are shown up as false witnesses for God in having testified that God has raised up Messiah, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Messiah has not been raised either. And if Messiah has been not raised, your trust is useless, and you are still in your sins. As, if the, the, as this is the case, those who died in union with Messiah are now lost. If it is only for this life that we have put our hope in Messiah, we are more pitiable than anyone. But the fact is that Messiah has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a man, also the resurrection of the dead has come through a man. For just as in connection with Adam all die, so with connection with Messiah all may be made alive. But each in his own order. The Messiah is first fruits. Then those who belong Messiah at the time of his coming, at his appearing. See how that coincides with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? That the dead and Messiah will rise first, and those that are alive will receive their glorified bodies also. Going forward here. But in each his own order, the Messiah is the first fruits, then those who belong to Messiah at the time of his coming. The accumulation when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father. After putting an end to every rulership, yes, every authority and power. For he has to rule until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be done away will be death. And for he will put everything in subjection under his feet. But when it says that everything has been subjected, obviously the word does not include God, who is himself the one subjecting everything to Messiah. Now when everything has been subjected to him, then he will, be, then he will subject himself to God, who subjected everything to him, so that God may be everything in everyone. Were it, were it otherwise, what would the people accomplish who are immersed on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not actually raised, why are people immersed for them? For that matter, we ourselves. Why do we keep facing danger hour by hour, brothers, by the right to be proud, which the Messiah Yeshua, our Lord, gives me? I solemnly tell you that I die every day. If fighting with wild beasts in Ephesus, when done merely on my human basis, what do I gain? If dead people are not raised, we might as well live by the saying, let, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by bad company rules, ruins good character. Come to your senses, live righteously, and stop sinning. There are some people who lack knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, in what manner are the dead raised? What sort of body do they have? Stupid. When you sow a seed, it doesn't come alive unless it first dies. Also, what you sow is not the body that will be, but a bare seed of, say, wheat or something else. But all living matter is the same living matter. On the contrary, there is one kind for human beings, another kind for living matter for animals, another for birds and another for fish. Further, there are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the beauty of the heavenly bodies is one thing, while the beauty of the earthly bodies is something else. The sun has one kind of beauty and the moon another, the stars yet another. Indeed, each star has its own individual kind of beauty. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. When the body's own, 
when the body is now sown, it decays. When it is raised, it cannot decay. That's speaking of the glorified body. When sown, it is without dignity. When raised, it will be beautiful. When sown, it is weak. When raised, it will be strong. When sown, it is ordinary human body. But when raised, it will be body controlled by the spirit. If there is an ordinary, if there is an ordinary human body, there is also a body controlled by the spirit. In fact, the Tanakh says, so Adam, the, the first man, became a living human being. But the last Adam has become a life-giving spirit. Note, however, that the body from the spirit did not come first, but the ordinary human one, the one from the spirit comes afterwards. The first man from the earth made of dust and the second man from heaven. People born of dust are like the man of dust. And people born from heaven are like the man from heaven. And just as we have been born of the image of man of dust, so we will bear the image of man from heaven. Let me say this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot share in the kingdom of God. Or can something that decays share in what does not decay? Look, I tell you a secret. Not all will die, but we will all be changed. And that it will take but a moment in the blink of an eye. At the final shofar, for the shofar will sound and the dead will be raised to live forevermore. And we too will be changed. For this material can, can decay, must be clothed with imperishability. This is which is the mortal, must be clothed with immortality. When what decays puts on imperishability and what is mortal puts on immortality, then the passage in the Tanakh will be fulfilled. Death is now swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? For the sting of death is sin, and sin draws its power from the Torah. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. So my dear brothers, stand firm, immovable, always doing the Lord's work as vigorous as you can, knowing that united with the Lord, your efforts are not in vain. So we are to take this word to heart. Are we allowing the resurrected Messiah to live his life in and through us? Are we allowing the Ruach HaKodesh, the spirit of living God, to change us into Messiah's character? Do we have the love of the Father for the lost? Are we proclaiming the good news? Do we want to fulfill the Father's will? And that's the question we have to ask both individually and as a corporate body of Messiah. May we give him all glory and honor and praise. May we accomplish the work that the Lord has called us for such a time as day. And may we seize this moment to glorify and build his kingdom. To God the Father, through his son Yeshua, by the, by the infilling and the equipping of the Ruach HaKodesh, we ask this in Yeshua's name. Amen.